Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Losudo Podcast. I am Ori. And I'm Nick. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most popular and biggest cloud providers in the world, the OG AWS. The... Ew! <laughs> <laughs> OG! The topics we're going to talk about are what is cloud computing? Why 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 should we choose AWS? A brief history of AWS. Though some AWS services, not all of them, there's a there's a ton. And our experience our experience utilizing AWS and how can you get started with AWS? Yeah, so first up is uh, what's cloud computing? So very, very basically, cloud computing is renting small virtual servers from a company which operates some massive physical servers. You can pay more or less for larger servers to suit the needs, smaller or larger servers, to suit the needs of your application. Many providers like AWS, which we're going to talk about today, sell specialized services in addition to customizable servers, such as servers optimized for and only capable of running databases. Yes, and rather than maintaining your own physical hardware, you pay another company to do that and only use the infrastructure that you need. By doing this, you reduce your own cost by sharing the investment in physical servers with other companies who also need them. This reduces the cost of getting a product in the market. Just think about like back in the day, you, you needed a website up, you needed to buy a server, you needed to do a lot of stuff. So now that we have cloud computing, it's a win-win-win situation. And for se- several years now, has been the way nearly all modern tech solutions are built. It's pretty cool stuff. And this idea didn't exist 20 years ago. But as we'll talk about in a bit here, it was on the horizon at Amazon. They were the first movers in this space and arguably the core creators of what we know today as the cloud. So other than this storied history, Ori, why should we use AWS? Yeah. So as as I mentioned on a previous episode, AWS is one of the most popular cloud providers. There are a few main reasons why we picked it. There is a ton of tutorials out there to get you acquainted with it. Um, The data centers are everywhere and new ones keep popping up. That means your servers can serve, pun intended, people in every corner of the planet quickly. Uh, Oh, nice pun. Yep. Very uh, nice. A very nice pun. (laughs) Benefit from economies of scale. So by launching applications at a pretty low cost, maybe even free, uh, AWS has a ton of data centers and they serve a ton of clients. So they try to make it as cheap as possible for newcomers. And sometimes when you're starting out, you don't even need to pay. There's people who have run years, small toy apps without paying anything. And then the last one is there is a huge, but a, huge number of services and that list keeps increasing due to demand on AWS to provide more. So you might not need services outside of AWS to make your applications function, but and you might not need all the services that they have, but it's good to have them available if you need them. It sure is. Um, 
So that's that's what the cloud landscape looks like now and and why Amazon in particular is a really good choice if you're using cloud technology um, for your software. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. And I think that the creation of the cloud, so to speak, is is really cool. So let's talk about a little brief history of AWS. Um, and an excellent and informative article by, uh, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, John Furrier that I read while researching this topic. He describes AWS as the biggest disruptive force in the tech industry that happened by accident. And I was remarkably inspired by how true that was as I dug into my research, Ori. Uh, For a company that's so dominant, it seems like it must have been born from a very deliberate plan. Uh, From everything I read, including interviews with the CEO of AWS, that just wasn't the case, and it fascinated me. Life is wild, and in my point of view, success can be just an accident, but how did the empire get started? (laughs) Yeah, great question. Uh, As AWS as we know it today sprang out of internal tooling, it turns out. Uh, Engineers at Amazon needed to solve a problem that I think we can all relate to. They had a very hard time predicting how long it would take to complete a project. Well, nah, nah, nah. I I can't relate to that at all. No idea what you're talking about. Hey, I hit every estimate I make. Right. Sure. Well, right. Yeah. 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 I mean, of course. Me. Me too. Me too. Uh, I should have said <laughs> other people can probably relate. Uh, so, <laughs> picture it's the year two thousand, uh, and Amazon has just grown out of selling only books on their online store. If for those of you who didn't know that, Amazon started off as a book bookstore, an online bookstore. They were the first one. Um, but now they've expanded to start selling other things. And major retailers across the U.S. don't really have e-commerce websites. Um, it's not a thing at this point. You can't go to walmart.com or target.com and go shop for stuff. Uh, instead, the more innovative ones are trying to work with Amazon to get their products listed on amazon.com. Uh, according to an interview with AWS CEO Andy Jassy, uh, given to TechCrunch in 2016, As Amazon is working on these partner integrations, they keep having trouble estimating how long their partner integrations will take. They're hiring more engineers, they've got a skilled workforce, but it's not going any faster or becoming more predictable. As they dig into the problem, they learn that one of the major reasons everything is taking so long is that every project has to stand up the same pieces of infrastructure time and time again. It's the same tools, but with slightly different non-standard configurations. So they have no way to just repeat them from project to project. There's no tooling around helping people set those up. It's a repeated and painful process, which leaves a lot of room for improvement. So Amazon engineers began working on internal services for providing standardized infrastructure to their development teams. They built the first pieces of AWS as internal tooling to speed up their own projects. And it was only after they'd been doing this for a few years that they began to realize that it could become a business of its own. And that's that's super cool. I love that. Yeah, I do too. It's really cool. Uh, There was kind of an awakening that happened uh, around 2003, and I'm not sure in what order, but on one hand, a couple of engineers who were working on these internal tools wrote a short paper for Jeff Bezos detailing what they saw as the business opportunities they could provide with these services, including, as they mentioned in like two sentences, renting virtual servers to external clients. Uh, second, the senior leadership 
uh, at Amazon during a leadership retreat recognized the company's infrastructure service competency as a core strength of their business and decided that they could probably leverage it. Uh, so yeah, summer of 2003, they began to see these internal tools as a sort of operating system for the internet. So websites and web apps uh, rely on the same core bits to run, uh, you know, database, storage uh, for assets, and computing power. Uh, the idea was that if companies could just buy those bits as services rather than buying the hardware to actually build those bits themselves, they would. It was way easier. Hardware and custom-built services are a pain in the butt, and Amazon had just built all these internal tooling solutions to solve that very same problem. If they honed their APIs for provisioning those services and made them public, they'd essentially have an operating system for building websites and applications, an operating system for the internet. At this point, they were not calling these tools AWS. What was it called instead? I've learned from this blog post by Amazon's uh, head web services evangelist, Jeff Barr, uh, that there was an AWS, but that this original Amazon web service was actually a SOAP slash XML web service for the uh, Amazon product catalog. So it was, and it was interestingly the thing that got him working at Amazon in the first place. So eventually they'd add an S to the service part, and it would become the umbrella term for the extremely impressive array of services we're going to talk about today. Uh, but yeah, originally it was basically an API for figuring out what stuff Amazon sold. <laughs> uh, and even before they'd, uh, you know, kind of come up with the, the services umbrella term that it, cause that was a pretty quick transition. It sounds like it, it, they began calling it Amazon web services before it was publicly released even. Um, but back then there were comparatively very few services that made up the group. So after Amazon's leadership decided that AWS was worth pursuing, they had to decide how to go after it. Should they just start with a storage layer, a compute solution, a database, all three? Um, as we discussed in our serverless episode, the last one we released, many websites do use all three. Um, and so while it would make sense to pick one service and prove that it worked well before going after the rest, they figured it wouldn't actually be that useful in isolation. So the AWS team decided that launching as a platform was the best option. Give the developers all the tools they needed right out of the gate. It was an ambitious move. Uh, can't say otherwise, but that early AWS uh, launch consisted of just S3, EC2, and SQS, which we'll learn more about later. According to a ZDNet article from 2012, uh, the first private partners began using the earliest form of AWS in 2005 under strict NDAs. And one year later, it became available to the public in the United States, and developers just flocked to the platform. Because until now, building a complex web app was impossible for small shops. You had to buy the hardware first. Scaling up to meet demand was even harder. Like, think about it. If your website was crashing because people wanted to go there, you had to buy a new computer to make your website beefier. Like, <laughs> this is not a thing you have to deal with anymore, thanks to cloud. But uh, that was what made it cost prohibitive for smaller shops. And now a kid in a college dorm room has as much access to web scale infrastructure as Target Corporation or Walmart. 
it's massive for the industry. So uh, they saw success and they continued expanding their offer, uh, offerings. So they, in 2007, they launched their first database solution called SimpleDB. In 2008, they took EC2 out of beta uh, and actually added an SLA to it to guarantee a certain amount of uptime, service level agreement for those who aren't familiar with that term. It just basically says Amazon guarantees you that the service will run this well, and if it doesn't, you can get money back. Um, but yeah, they launched S3 in Europe as well, uh, and the CloudFront Content Distribution Network, or CDN, all in 2008. Uh, in 2009, they launched the uh, Relational Database Service, RDS, which is is super huge. That lets you start using SQL databases as a service. Um, and in, by 2016, they were even pushing into machine learning as a service. Uh, so it is, it's really wild to see how they've grown since its inception and just how well that concept has really worked of focusing on providing services to developers. Um, so they, they were able to build this behemoth because they focused on what their own needs as a company were. And then they got good at addressing them. And then they would see if there was a market for those skills that they'd acquired. Uh, when AWS was born, the cloud was just a crazy idea that they thought might work based on things they'd heard from their partnerships doing e-commerce, other companies dealing with the same problems that they were dealing with. But as the Freer article says, today, AWS customers include NASA, the Obama campaign, Pinterest, Netflix, Apple, and the CIA. Uh, they took a good tool and made one heck of a business out of it. In fact, that business is insanely successful. Um, in 2019, AWS alone pulled in $9.4 billion in operating income, according to Motley Fool, uh, which represents 63% of Amazon's total operating income. And that's despite representing only 12% of Amazon's overall revenue, Ori. Super impressive. Yeah, that is that is insane. It's a total cash cow. They're getting that money back for something that was a complete kind of mistake. They were like, oh, this, this might work. And they took a pretty big risk on that. Uh, but we're seeing the benefits in the tech world. So let's dive into that. Yeah, we definitely are, uh, and it makes you know it makes it easier for engineers to bring cool, innovative tools to market and products to market because it's no longer impossibly expensive. It's obviously good for cloud providers too. Um, Andy Jassy sees cloud infrastructure as a major way to expand the total available market in the computing sector because it adds so many new user segments, people who couldn't formerly access these technologies. So it's really cool. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about what these new user segments are actually getting access to. Yep, and we're gonna now we're gonna dive down into the AWS services. So right now, um, there's over 175 services at the time we recorded this. Uh, we're only going to talk of a few because uh, there is a lot, and we don't have all the time for it. I don't know, Ori. I think our listeners would love a 24-hour podcast, I think. <laughs> yeah, 24-7. Oh, this is a new AWS services. Let's dive deep into this. Yeah, yeah. Not doing it. Nope. <laughs> All right. So let's start with the first one on the list. 
um, and it's one of my favorite ones. That is S3. It's one of the oldest services they got, as we mentioned before with the history. Um, it's called Amazon Simple Storage Services, or S3. Notice the three S's there. They like acronyms a lot. Um, and this service is an object storage service that has a high availability, security, and performance. Think about it like a Google Drive, but with a few more features. You can store images, videos, music, etc. But you can also host static websites like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript that I didn't know that, and it's wild. Mm-hmm. In terms of durability, they say they have the 99 point and then 11 nines that I don't know what it truly means. And I don't know how to test if those 11 nines are correct. But that's what they say in their marketing material and on their website. Um, and that durability technically is based on their data replication. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like Spinal Tap Special Amp, you know, most most storage solutions only go up to 10 nines, but AWS goes up to 11, baby. <laughs> so so how do they how do they achieve the achieve that kind of reliability? Well, frankly, we don't really know. Their software is proprietary and their strategies are trade secrets. Like their software is not open source. We cannot view any of its uh, guts. Uh, for the most part, though, they, d- they do do it. Their service level agreement for S3 actually only guarantees two nines. But anything less than that makes you eligible for a discount. Sneaky, but in a way that's hard to get mad at. Interesting. Exactly. So S3 is also pretty cheap compared to other services out there. Unless you got a lot of data, you might be okay on a free tier for a long time. Uh, they do have different tiers. They have four tiers of access, and the pricing goes from high to low. So they have the frequent access. So that means that you're, you need the data to be highly available and fast. So this is the fastest tier. You won't have any lag getting the, da- the data, depending on where you're at. And then you have infrequent access that the data needs to be fast, but it can take a little time since it's hardly accessed. Then we go into the more deeper, more like uh, archival uh, S3 uh, tiers. That is, the first one is just archive access. It's just called like that. And this is where you actually start seeing savings. So if you don't need to access the data at all, you can archive it. And the, and the windows for accessing it increase dram- dramatically. I believe, don't quote me at this, I will probably research it, it's like 12 hours to access a data in this tier. Dang, I didn't know it was that long. That's cool. And then the deep archive access, this is the cheapest one, it pretty much means that the retrieval time are really, really high, and I believe it's 24 hours. And it's mostly used for data backups. You might access once a year or a bigger timeline. So just think about... If you have some user data that you don't want to delete and you just want to archive it and then you need to view it maybe once a year or more, you just have it there. Probably between archive access and deep archive is going to be your solution. And there are some, there is something called the intelligent uh, 
I cannot remember the exact name, but it's like intelligent tiering where it moves your data around on those mm. four different categories. So Amazon can do it for you with machine learning, but you can do it yourself. Why not? So deep, <laughs> deep archive access is like where the hoarders keep their data, like data from 1938 where that they just you don't want to throw out yet. They just put it in deep archive access and then they can know it's always there. Yeah, correct. Like, just imagine uh, bank statements for, like, 10 years ago. Like, you don't need that data now, (laughs) but you can just archive it and not worry about it. Cool. Now, for the next one, and we have talked about this one before, is Lambda. And this is still a serverless solution that allows you to call functions on the cloud that compute something without the need to provision a server yourself. Think about it like this way. Let's say you got an e-commerce application. And you need to allow people to pay for a product. You can create a backend server that handles all the requests to take the payment and complete it. Or you can use a serverless function. The good thing about serverless functions is that you will only pay for the time it takes to compute the transaction. Meanwhile, with a server, you will pay for its uptime. So a server should run 24-7 and you pay for that time period and for whatever usage, what other usage you have. Meanwhile, with a serverless function, you only pay when it runs and when it ends and how, how much time it was. The other benefit is that it scales on demand. Well, you need to configure anything. For your server, you will need to add auto scaling and a bunch of other things to have that be- those benefits. Ori, for the folks out there that might not be familiar with the concept of scaling, could you explain it a bit and touch on why auto scaling is so nice? Uh, for sure. So scaling is the ability to increase resources and responsiveness to meet the demands. Uh, I always like this example. Uh, remember when Pokemon Go released that the servers were pretty slow due to how many people were interacting with the application. And if, if you have an automatic scaling on demand, you can make servers beefier or create more servers um, to allocate those resources to allow all your clients to access that application again that when pokemon go released that was it was still slow but it was catching up if you didn't have auto scaling the servers will have crashed so just to summarize auto scaling simply means this happens automatically in response to increased demand without the need for human intervention Wonderful. Thanks for the explanation. And if that sounds interesting to you, we just did another episode of the Sudo podcast called What the Heck is Serverless that cover, uh, that covers Lambda and other related concepts in detail. Check it out. Now let's talk about servers, actually. So th- this service is called EC2. And let's say you might need something to handle a big number of requests all the time or just get your web app up. And that's where EC2 comes in. So EC2 stands for Elastic Compute Cloud. Again, more acronyms. Um, They offer a choice of processor, storage, networking, operating system, and purchase model. You can use it for whatever you wish. And I always say, servers are love, servers are life. (laughs) They sure are. Uh, And as I discussed earlier, EC2 is one of the very first services that Amazon offered. 
And it's also the archetype for what I think of when I think of cloud computing or cloud infrastructure. It's important to remember that these are not physical servers. They're virtual machines running on Amazon's hardware that you can do whatever you want with. Uh, interestingly, just a little, little fun fact for those of you out there uh, who, who are interested. Um, many of us who use uh, these kind of cloud computing solutions choose to run our own virtual servers on the ones that we rent from Amazon. So if you've heard of Docker or Kubernetes, these are tools for running super lightweight virtual servers called containers. Uh, and they're very commonly used on EC2. Um, containers are definitely worth their own episodes, so we're not going to cover them here. But I get a kick out of this because it's like turtles all the way down. Virtual servers running virtual servers. And going back to a sample of Pokemon Go, they were actually using Kubernetes to um, automatically scale up and down their um, services. Oh. And that helped them meet demands because they, I believe they were, when they launched their software, it was three times as big as the demand they were expecting. So I didn't know they they used Kates for that. That's cool. Yep. So they they need a Kubernetes. If it was a human <laughs> doing it, it will be rough. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one guy sitting there with like way too much coffee. Like scale up, scale up now. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. So the next service um it is actually free. And it's one that I recommend you get started with before doing anything with AWS. It's called IAM and stands for Identity Access Management. It allows you to create users and groups with different levels of permissions to access AWS resources. What does that look like in practice? So let's say you got an organization with a DevOps engineer, a few developers, and an accountant. The DevOps engineer will probably need access to all the resources to be able to manage uh, and monitor those resources. Then for your developers, you might just need access to Lambda because, or to SQS because that's pretty much what they're trying to do. They're trying to deploy serverless functions or do queries. Mm -hmm. Then the accountant doesn't need access to none of that. Probably only needs access to billing. So with IAM, you can set all these permissions easily. The permissions are not set in stone, however, so you can change them as many times as needed, and you can revoke access or grant access. Uh, right on. Makes total sense. Um, at, we use the heck out of IAM at Doc Network, uh, and it, it's been really useful for us. In fact, our own permission system in our application is based on IAM, uh, so it's, it's a really cool tool that's super inspiring. So, but if you're the admin of your AWS account, Ori, uh, why not just use the admin login all the time? Well, when you open that AWS account, the first account you create is a root user. It's a good practice to create an IAM user account for yourself with a good permission set. So that will be to all resources to allow you to create and manage those resources. That way, if let's say your IAM user accounts get compromised, you can log in as root and then remove the compromised account and add a new one. You should always, always, always with a root account, you should add two-file authentication and then just store it for emergencies. Don't use it. Don't just don't worry about it. Use your IAM and then if it gets compromised, mm. remove that account and create a new one. Smart move. All right. 
So let's dive into two services that will actively help you get started with uh, AWS. The first one is going to be Elastic Beanstalk, and it's the fastest and easiest way to deploy your applications. It will automatically manage all your applications' needed resources like deployment, capacity provisioning, load balancing, auto-scaling, and application health monitoring. Then we got CloudFormation. The difference between these two services is that with CloudFormation, you can define a template on what condition should resources be created, destroyed, or consumed, and it will handle everything for you. Meanwhile, Elastic Beanstalk um, just does everything for you. It's not programmable. You cannot do anything about it. Interesting. So Beanstalk is like infrastructure templating on easy mode, similar to something like Google App Engine. Whereas CloudFormation is like Beanstalk for power users who want total control of their infrastructure templates. Yeah, that's pretty much the point there. So to summarize, that's a Beanstalk handles everything for you and is not programmable. Meanwhile, it's a good starting point for when you get more experience, you might want to switch to CloudFormation where you can program your infrastructure to handle your needs. And um, both services are free but the resources that it uses, like the servers, it provisions are not. Up next, we have uh, SQS, the Simple Queue service, which is another one of the OG services that were released as part of AWS. SQS is um, useful for, it's a messaging service. So a lot of times in cloud computing, you're running a bunch of servers doing the same thing and you need a way for those servers to communicate with one another, or maybe they're not doing the same thing. Maybe they're doing something uh, based on events that happen on one server and it needs to talk to another one. Uh, SQS is a way to do that. Um, it's a service that lets you send messages between different machines. Um, it's one way, for example, to do push notifications. Uh, so you can have your application subscribe to a queue, and every time a message goes into the queue, it can pop up on someone's phone, and your servers can push messages in there based on you know whatever events are happening there. So if you're a news organization and you upload a new story to your content management system, your server can send a message into the queue, and your application will read from that queue and inform the user that there's a new story. Um, so there's two types of queues that are available through SQS. One is the standard queue, and that's optimized basically for high throughput. So sometimes you can end up with duplicate messages in there because the idea is you want to be really, really sure that you don't drop a message and there's lots of things reading from the queue. Uh, they also offer a specialized type of queue called a FIFO queue, first in, first out. Uh, which is basically going to make sure that as things get entered into your queue system, they will go in the order that they were received out to the server that's receiving them. So, for example, we use that for our uh, reporting infrastructure at Doc Network. So somebody requests a report. We log a message to our report server. It pulls that data and creates the report for them and then makes it available to them. But it's always going to happen in the order that the reports were requested. So we're not we're making sure that you know nobody's getting duplicate reports and that you know uh, their the customers are served in the order that they request their reports. Uh, so it's a really useful and versatile tool. You can use it for all kinds of different stuff, uh, and it's it's like really really cheap. Uh, we we use the heck out of it, and it costs us like 
$2.50 a month. So it, it's pretty cool. Lastly, we got CloudWatch that allows you to monitor AWS resources, giving you logs, alarms, events, and system-wide metrics. Um, you can visualize your metrics of your infrastructure and plan ahead what you need to do to take the most advantage of your AWS resources. One of the main things you got to do with CloudWatch in the beginning is set a billing alarm in case you go over your budget. It will email you telling you what you did and don't get surprised with a big bill. Going back to our scaling conversation from earlier, another cool thing you can do is set uh, usage alarms in CloudWatch to trigger scaling events. This is super useful because while Lambda has default auto-scaling, other services like EC2 don't. So EC2 has a scaling feature, but you need some way to tell the service to scale up or down. Using CloudWatch alarms, you can trigger scaling events in EC2 to add or remove servers depending on demand. So that's that's the uh, that's the bulk of our of our service catalog that we're going to touch on today. Those are the ones that we think are probably the most important for you to be familiar with out of the gate, just if you're interested in AWS. But there's a ton more. So uh, we use AWS at work, uh, but we also use it in our personal projects. And so we're going to talk a bit about you know our experience with AWS. And it's the weekend, and we talk a lot about work on this podcast. So we're going to focus on personal projects this time. <laughs> Yeah, and I've been getting training to through a cloud guru about AWS since it's one of the most popular services out there. And as a developer, I believe if I can understand and be able to work with infrastructure, it will be a solid addition to my resume and workplace. A uh, uh, side joke, nothing is more dangerous than a developer who can do full stack and deploy their own infrastructure easily. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> At my workplace, my experience has been limited to S3 and Lambda since we use a handful of serverless functions to do some business processes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and you're just kind of getting trained on on uh, AWS in, in terms of personal projects, right? Your serverless uh, background is more from, was it Firebase? Yes, it's mostly from Firebase, and I've been transitioning stuff a little bit through AWS because they have so many services out there and Firebase is limited in, in services. Yeah, that's very specialized, shall we say. Uh, so yeah, the, the vast majority of my experience is work-based as well. Uh, however, I've, I have used S3 for hosting just for fun personal single page apps before, um, and it works like a charm, honestly. It's really easy to set up a custom domain through like a simple DNS or Cloudflare, or if you want to stay in the AWS ecosystem, you can use Route 53 or CloudFront. Um, additionally, I've used AWS Media Convert to set up a streaming pipeline. Uh, that was a pretty wild experiment. Um, honestly, I, I know nothing about streaming services, but I was able to read a few articles and get a full pipeline in place with uh, S3 Media Convert and a front-end player on a WordPress site that could accept streamed stuff. Uh, so, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier about, uh, how cool, uh, cl cloud infrastructure is, uh, for people who are just like, I have this idea and I want to try it. Like I could never have done that without cloud infrastructure available to me. So, um, shout out, change the outcome, which does really cool work on, uh, on addiction education for young people in an honest and fact-based way. 
uh, the streaming pipeline I set up was for their documentary so that they could more easily share their program with schools and communities. So um, it supports good causes too. go cloud. I didn't know that you could uh, have a streaming service easily. That's uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's super cool. So like the way it worked was basically I upload their documentary to S3 and then I tell media convert, hey, this is where it is. Chop it into little bits at this resolution. And it says, okay, and it pipes it back into S3 after it chops it up. And then I can set up a manifest in the front end player to go to that S3 bucket and um, and then pull the bits and it just streams it right right from S3 into the media player. Uh, and that works out really well for us because then I can password protect the bucket and everything. Uh, actually, it's protected with key files, so only our WordPress server can access it. Um, and then that lets us also put a password user setup in front of the movie so we can always make sure that our partners are getting up-to-date information and they're not trying to use it in ways that we're not okay with. You know, we still maintain control over the program. So it's it's really neat. That's pretty neat. So let's dive into how you can actually get started with AWS. So my recommendation, as I mentioned before, is setting that IM user for yourself. You want to do this, the first thing you should do is get the IM user. Don't do anything else, set up that. And then get your feet wet with Elastic Beanstalk. Then most servers are run with Linux. Um, and a good way to get acquainted with the commands is either using a Mac or installing a distro like Ubuntu or Fedora. And Fedora is honestly my favorite, it's the one I use. Um, that way, you will be able to work with a command line with no fear. I know many, many people fear the command line, but honestly, it's not as bad as people uh, picture it. It's actually really good. It's beautiful. It makes your workflow faster, and it will allow you to work to manage your system easily. And just just think about scripts. You can, you can install everything with one single click. You make a script with all your programs, one click, your system is done. With Windows, gotta go to every website, download the, the program, install it. Linux got you, boy. It's <laughs> good. They got you. They got you just like that. Yeah. So, as, as Ori says, the command line really isn't, it's not bad. Um, it, you know, it's a skill like anything else. It, it takes practice to get good at, but honestly, it's not much practice. And as soon as you start figuring it out a little bit, you feel like a God, you can just like <laughs> cruise around your computer, like some hacker in a movie, like we're in, uh, and you're just like, cruise. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but the other piece I'll say is the, one of the main reasons that you should consider installing at least dual booting a distribution like, uh, Ubuntu or Fedora is that, almost all of the examples that you'll find in developer documentation are going to use a Linux or at least a Unix-like system. So it'll make it really easy to follow along with tutorials compared to using it on a Windows system. Um, beyond that, don't be afraid of Linux either. It's come so, so far uh, in the in the last decade, I'm sure. But I can tell you, I haven't used Windows as, a, as my main system since 2015. And I installed Ubuntu without knowing how to use the command line. So you can get in there 
And it's a very friendly user interface. You don't need to be some kind of computer guru to use it. It's it's pretty easy. And for my two cents on getting started with AWS, uh, outside of getting you know your your tools in place, um, I if you want to start with just S3 and see how that works, that's a great place to start. You can host a static website with S3 and see what else you need next. I, I am. If you're anything like me, you'll get it up there and be like, ah, oh, man, I wish I had a server to do X, Y, and Z. And then you might be like, well, maybe I'll check out Lambda instead of a server, or maybe I need a server and I'll, I'll check out EC2. Um, and it's it's kind of a gateway into getting yourself familiar with all the different things that you need to do to you know run a complex application. So don't be afraid to just dip your toes in the water. You can you can pick one thing and start slow. Uh, it, it's a it's a fun world when you get into it. Yeah, and, and, and like I mentioned before, nothing is more dangerous of a developer that actually knows their infrastructure. I will assure you that I will get your foot into any interview if you go like, oh yeah, I I manage my infrastructure by myself. I have an AWS account and do everything. <laughs> so, and they'll be like, wait, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> yeah, if you go to an engineering interview and you're like, okay, so really, in, what are you using for container orchestration? I've been a big fan of Docker through uh, Elastic Container Registry. Anyone is going to be like, okay, this person knows what the heck they're talking about right now. So it, it's a it's a great personal set of skills to develop to become a marketable engineer as well. Yep, they'll throw money at you and you'll be happy. <laughs> but anyways, that is a wrap. We covered everything you need to know about David Douglas. We covered all 175 services. Boom. Great job. Absolutely nailed it. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, there's a ton we didn't talk about here today, and you should totally go read about it if you're interested in learning more. Snake mentioned just pick a service, get started, get your feet wet. There is a ton out there, and probably you're not going to cover every single one in a reasonable timeline. So as always, we'll post all the sources we use when researching this topic at the Commit Hub blog. Um, that's commithub.com. And that's a great place to start. Sure is. And if you'd rather just have us tell you about this stuff in our and perpetually blow your minds with our melodious and magnificent voices, that's an option too. <laughs> We're going to be talking a lot more about cloud tools in upcoming episodes. We sure are. In fact, our next episode will cover what the heck are containers since we're in the train of the train of cloud computing. So containers. Containers. Until then, stay safe out there. We'll talk to you soon. And for our U.S. listeners, happy Thanksgiving. See ya.